Hi, and welcome to the Fractal Marketing Podcast. My name is Jared Doyle, and on this show, I take marketing questions from listeners and provide answers so that everybody who tunes in can learn a little bit more about marketing and hopefully find some ideas for their business. Hi, and welcome to episode four of the Startup Marketing Podcast with me, Jared Doyle. On this week's podcast, we look at how to set your price for a service-based company. We then discuss the struggles of getting people to accept your new business idea. And I look into a recent visit to my local cafe where they didn't accept my Amex card. So the first question this week comes from Danielle Duell, who is the founder of People With Purpose. Danielle writes in, One of the questions that have come up for me this week is how I can work out what a customer might be prepared to pay for our services. The expectations can vary a lot, and I've had to redo two quotes today. So, Danielle, as a service-based business, the first thing is your typical startup pricing table on a website where you have your free, low, medium, professional, gold, contact us price table where you can compare and split test isn't going to work. You know, you're working in an industry that has a few clients and the prices and the services and the packages are going to vary wildly from one to the other. So what we need to do when we've got a business like this is be a little bit more artful in the way that we approach it. We can't quite be as scientific as many startup founders might want to be. The first thing I think of when I go through this process is, you know, it does help to be able to talk about price early. So what I'm thinking here is it's that way you sort of sound out and work out the kind of budget that somebody might be talking or might be willing to prepare. And and the reason you do this is that you don't want to be having a long drawn out discussion where you're working hard on proposals, ideas, pitches, only to find out when you get to the other side and it comes down to sort of talking tic-tac, so to speak, that the client that you've been pitching is in a totally different ballpark. Now, when I say that, you know, you also run the risk here of and I'm sure you wouldn't do this, but you know, being overly aggressive and racing in and trying to find out a price point. You know, how much money do you have? Are you worth my time? Now, this kind of strategy has been taken apart over time, but it, the one that sort of has stuck the most over this time is one framework called BANT, which is another acronym. If marketing needed more, there's another one, or this is really sales actually, so we don't have to worry about this one as much, but BANT is B-A-N-T. And it really spun out of IBM and it was something that they're, sales team and, and account managers coined. And what it stands for is budget, authority, need, and time frame. Now, I'll kind of go through each of these, but I don't think that this is necessarily a solution for you. Um, I think there's better frameworks out there now, more complicated frameworks, but it's good to sort of run through each of these different elements because it gets you thinking about what we might like to, to discuss with a client early on. So budget, what we're talking about there is essentially, and quite obviously, really, the prospect's budget. You know, you're trying to get a gauge for how much money they might have. Google often looks at this and talks about the budget actually being a function of the amount of revenue a company has. And the reason is, is that if you're pitching early, you should be really focusing on the value add over the budget. And the reason we do this is that value can supersede a budget by creating more value and I guess revenue and I guess it almost creates budget in itself and the way the the business might go. So what I mean by that is if you pitch an idea that will save money or generate new revenue above and beyond the expectations and what have been budgeted for, well, in theory, there's now more budget for them to play with. So 
look, you know, we want to get budget there, but really I would take a much more Google SaaS approach to this is to work out, well, how much revenue and profit does this company have? And therefore, how much potential budget are we talking about? The second letter there is A for authority. So this is where you want to make sure the prospect that you're talking to has the decision-making authority or is she an influencer on that authority? Or is, is she actually almost entirely irrelevant in just gathering up facts? You know, these three different people are three very different people to be talking to. If the person you're speaking to can make the decision to spend budget, then it's an entirely different conversation. An influencer, in some ways, influencers are more powerful to talk to, but you, you want to work this out. And so what we're doing with this framework is, and I'm not going to go into the actual details of scoring here, but what we're looking at is, you know, giving these a one, two, three, or a one to five or a one to 10 score. So you can add them all up and see where we end up. So the next letter um, that we're looking at is N for need. So what is the prospect's need? You know, is it is it a real need or is it a, is it a sort of a like or a want? It's funny. I think about this in the way that I discuss things with my five-year-old and my nine-year-old kids. And they often say, you know, daddy, I need to play Minecraft. And it's like, well, you know, do you need to play Minecraft or would you like to play Minecraft? Uh, I mean, that's overly, so that's obviously overly simplifying the situation we're facing here. But it, it, again, it's a, it's a nice analogy to think of to help you sort of understand the value of the prospect you're talking at. And also you want to look at T, which is the time frame. In what time frame would the prospect be implementing a solution? The further away the, the time of actual implementation and realizing that value that you've been pitching, the harder it's going to be and arguably the smaller the budget it's going to be. So really, what are we talking about here? Look, we want to find out who we're speaking to. We understand like how much value that prospect potentially has. Give it like a lead score um, in a system that you have. But, you know, as much as we want to be working out elements like budget, we do want to be understanding, more importantly than most of the other things, is, is pitching, not understanding, sorry, pitching the idea of the value over the budget and getting that right. Now, that's all well and good, but, you know, you didn't ask a question to get a bunch of theories thrown at you. So the best thing I can do here is give you an example, and this is an example I've completely stolen from the mentor in residence at River City Labs called, um, his name is Peter Laurie. And I went to one of Peter's mentoring sessions in the precinct here in Brisbane. And, and Peter's got this great concept of how to price. On the basis that he shares in his mentoring sessions, I'm going to give you the verbal version of his um, model. And if we're lucky, you know, Peter presents every mentoring session where he scribbles on a Microsoft Surface Pro. And if we're lucky, we might be able to get a couple of screenshots that'll explain this better than I'm going to be able to do over the podcast. But essentially what Peter's model does or the way he likes to approach he says okay so you've got a you're gonna be selling a few number like a low number of services and so coming up with a price can be really difficult it's not like you're going to be able to say i'm going to take on a hundred clients and average all their prices because all the services are going to be different so his approach to make this work is a little bit different peter argues that what you should do is find your first client who's sold on your business solution your service then you should say to them, I'm willing to fix the price you're currently paying. Now, I'm not going to change it for a period of time. So that might be five, 10 years into the future. Don't make it indefinite for reasons to do with selling the company and, and locking yourself in, but make it a really long time. Then what you want to do is ask that client, once they've agreed and they understand you're going to lock the price in, is you want to go to that client and say, how much would you be willing to pay for my services? What's the most you would be willing to pay? And when you think about that, that's quite an abrupt statement and it's something that most customers would never, ever tell you the right answer to. But it helps if you work through the logic with that first customer. 
You simply say to them, look, I'm having trouble pricing my product. We've agreed, we've got a contract that says, I'm not gonna change the price of the product to you. But what I wanna do is make the most amount of money possible. And I'm gonna go to other companies and I wanna charge them the right price. Now, I don't wanna charge them less than you. That's not obviously not what you want, but I wanna charge them as much as possible. So if you can help me price my business, to the maximum I would be able to charge, then you're going to be paying the low price for the next five to 10 years or whatever we've locked in. And all the people using my services are going to be paying more. In addition to that, because that's kind of a, a weird sort of negative approach to the world. But the other benefit is, the you know, most of these customers will see that the more money you're making, the more services and value and experience you're going to be able to be getting and gaining, and they're going to benefit from that. So it creates a really interesting way to price your service, even to the point where you might find that you're talking to two businesses who might be competitors with with each other. You could be talking to Epson and Canon, and they both need your product. They both need your services. But one, you know, it's going to be very hard to play them off against each other. They're both going to have a negative feeling about that. But the idea that you could ask one, lock the price in, and they could push the price up for the competitor is amazing. You can imagine if Canon was your first customer, and Canon could set that price. I would expect Canon not only to give you the maximum price that they would be willing to pay, but they'd probably also tell you exactly how to position your product to Epson so that they paid even more, even though it was exactly the same service. So just to qualify that, that's not my idea. That's Peter Laurie. Um, and I'm really hoping he's got some slides or some information I can share in the um, the comments of the LinkedIn post um, after it goes live and I point out to him that I've stolen that <laughs> and mentioned it on my podcast. The next area that I just want to look at for you is to talk about the price, you know, to really price the value given, not the effort required. You know, really avoid cost plus pricing. That's a dangerous model where you sort of think, well, this is my time or this is my service or this is what it costs for me to produce this particular output. I'll put 20% on that. That seems about right. Um, And we get to that position often because that's the way consumers and customers and clients think about how they want to price it. They want to understand how much money you're going to make. And therefore, you know, I'll just give you as little as I think you kind of deserve. Whereas the much more positive way to approach this and the better way to approach this for both the client and the service provider is to really value the overall value of the product or you know the service that's being provided. If you do that, you'll have a better relationship. If you do that, you're almost certainly going to drive more revenue. And the discussion probably won't be about haggling down. It'll be around the features and what's best for them. So that kind of gets to the second part that I wanted to discuss in this little area here, which is to talk about always give price options. Allow, even though you know right at the start of this podcast I said, you know, we're not in a situation where you can have a pricing table it does help to give the person choice. Choice is what most people desire when they're negotiating, that ability to move things around. It might not be that they're not seeing value in what you're producing. It might simply be that they can't come up with the money required to make that happen. Giving them options to cut certain elements out and add things in is going to make a big difference. So think about the essentials, think about the non-essentials, the nice-to-haves, and how you can layer that up. Um, it, It also, you know, I think with all pricing strategies, people do tend to migrate towards the middle price. They will sit there and sort of say, well, I don't want to do the cheapest option. I also don't want to do the most expensive option. So they will tend to pick around the middle regardless of the pricing structure you put together. So being aware of that makes a big difference. Um, The last thing I'd say in this little bit is just to talk about competitors pricing. Look, you do have to be aware of it. 
if your service is going to be priced above, you've got to make sure it's positioned as a premium product. Conversely, you know, you might find that you are going under uh, the price of your competitors. Look, I really hate low pricing. I really don't like the idea of a business coming in and saying, we're going to compete on low price because there's always going to be somebody who's able to come in lower. And it's such a quantifiable measure of which clients or customers are able to jump ship and change. There's no loyalty there. It's built around price. I um, I consider price to be the lazy marketer solution to getting customers. If you're relying on price, you're really not that creative. You haven't come up with too much else. Look, I know that companies like Amazon have made great businesses, but even Amazon with low prices has really stepped up their game. And, you know, they're now top for service, top for stock, all these different elements. The price is still a big driver, but I'd really try to get away from it. But at the same time, be completely aware of what your competitors are pricing. So last but not least, I just would like to mention that I think it helps to consider different models. So whether that be charging an hourly rate, a flat fee, or even variable pricing, project-based pricing, there are different ways to go about these things. As a service-based industry, you're or provider, you, you really are going to really be boiling everything down to hours, but it can help to do projects. It can, if you can get a really neat project, that will steer you much closer towards value. You can get closer to value. People are buying the output in the project, not the hourly rate. Even though you might have baked hourly rates in, by pricing on a project, you're really driving that customer much closer to a project and a value-driven proposition. Yes, there's going to be times when there's, you know, scope creep and things blow out. But look, you know, you'll do those, you'll deliver, you might not make as much money, you might have to work some long hours. But just as many times as that happens, if you're good at your pricing, you're going to find businesses or projects that you're working on with clients where you deliver them quickly. And they don't need to know the hours behind because they paid for the output. So if possible, try to look at project-based pricing, try to play around with Peter Laurie's pricing model, focus on the value. And just try to get some kind of scoring algorithm. You know, band isn't the best. There's a lot around there. You'll probably be driven by whatever kind of CRM solution you've got. But if you can put some kind of scoring mechanism in place and just some kind of rigor, hopefully you're going to do a bit better. Look, I hope that helps you. The second question in today's podcast comes from Zach Iqbal. And Zach is the founder of Stocker, which is S-T-O-C-R. And Zach asked the simple but really kind of deep question, how do I get people to accept my new idea and use it? Great question, Zach. Um, simple question, really difficult to answer because essentially you're saying, how do I make my business work? How do I get adoption? And look, there's a few frameworks, ideas, books, theories that I always fall back to when I'm talking about these things. And the first thing is when you're talking about a new idea is get an appreciation for the adoption of innovation curve. And that's the curve that says, most people, if your idea is really, really unique and it's new and people have never seen it before, most people, 98.5% of people out there, aren't going to like your product. So that's probably the most important thing as a founder of an innovative product to really understand and really accept right from the outset. If you grasp the idea that 98.5% of people aren't going to like your product, gee, that makes your life a whole lot easier when you realize you're getting knocked down time and time again. And well, that's just normal because your idea is innovative. You are looking for the one and a half percent of people. So what's the battle here? The battle is finding the innovators, finding the early adopters, the people that are likely to take on your product. 
the hardest thing to do as a founder is try to appeal to a mass market. Just assume that everyone's going to get your product. Yes, you can see why it's better. Some people can see why your product is better. But trying to pitch it to everybody and getting really frustrated when you find out that, you know, that why, what aren't you seeing? This is so clear. You've just got to understand that in any given area, not everyone is going to be an innovator. Not everybody's going to look to adopt. I look at myself as a, you know, case study of one, but I would consider myself in terms of, say, SaaS products, online marketing SaaS products, I'm an early adopter. Probably not an innovator, but an early adopter. I find out there's a new product. I want to give it a spin. I want to try it and test it and see what kind of difference it's going to make for my business. The big SaaS products that come out like zero for accounting. There are still accountants out there. My father-in-law doesn't like zero. He's not going to adopt it, but he's 74 years old. You know, he's got no need to adopt it. But there are people that can get onto these solutions early. You've got to work out a way to find people that are going to adopt your product early and just pitch to those people. The other key thing, and again, you know, these aren't my ideas I'm stealing. This is from Simon Sinek. And look, I'm almost certain you've seen Simon's presentation on TED. I've seen some of your posts. You, you, I'd be shocked to find that you didn't know who he was and you hadn't watched his TED talk on why, probably own his book. But look, just for the purposes of your question, I think it's important to go back and address his whole TED talk around why. And I'm sort of misquoting him here, but the idea is that people don't buy what you're doing, they buy why you're doing it. And the idea behind that is that if you could be really clear on why you're in the business, why you started this, what you want to achieve, that's where the innovators and early adopters will forgive all the other sins that you might have in your product. It might be a bit scratchy. It might not be all the way there. But what you're really trying to say is, come with me on this journey. You believe in what I believe in. Let's go together and let's see what we can do. So I'm not going to talk at length about Simon's presentation because I will ultimately just be reading his script. But check out his TED Talk. I quote it all the time. I just think it's one of the most concise and magical ways to talk about marketing, how to position an effective and innovative product. So definitely take a look at that. And that's going to be key. In a little bit more of a um, practical sense, I really think there's a key for you, which is to focus on selling the benefit and not the features. So Zach, you know, when I talk about finding the benefit, you know, I think the key, and, and again, in your why, is going to be clear when I look at the front page of your website. That's the spot where you really need to be getting your why and your benefit across really quickly. So a quick look at your website, and it's great, you know, it's, it's a great website, but the, you know, the, the first sort of H1 tag I'm seeing at the top is welcome to Stocker, which is lovely in its sentiment, but I think that needs to be really jumping in to the benefit. I want you to be pitching there the benefit to Stocker straight away. Now, you kind of touch on the feature in the second line, which is the best quotes for farming and agricultural supplies. So this is a great feature if you like, but the benefit is actually the idea of saving money, saving time, I think we can be a little bit tighter with that, but I'd like to see that a bit higher up on that page and really clear. And then then make that the headline. So bring up the feature you've got at the moment, try to turn it closer towards a benefit. And then rather than having the welcome to stocker, that's where I'd put in your why. I'd put in almost like a mission statement for your business. This is what we're trying to do. And then you've got your call to action button, which makes a huge amount of sense. But I think if you start thinking about turning features into benefits in all the copy that you write, 
You start talking about trying to sell the why you're in the business and get these farmers to join you, you're going to be in a better place. Tapping back to, or sort of moving back, sorry, to what I was talking about before in terms of finding innovators and early adopters. Look, ag tech in Australia now is, is and around the world, it, you know, there would have been a time where you would have said, it's not going to happen. You know, like they're not innovative. It's an old school um, sort of industry. I look 10 years ago, remember watching my cousin. So the Doyle side of my family comes from, are all sort of dairy farmers from Western Australia. And I watched my cousin use his phone to dial up the sprinkler system, which was some kind of ridiculously large sort of 500 meter long sprinkler crawling system that he could control from his mobile phone. And it was at that point you realized that, you know, ag tech wasn't just a word that we heard. It was, this was real and was happening. So, you know, there are innovators out there. There are people absolutely who will adopt your product. I think we've just got to get them along for the journey. And also they're going to have limited time. You know, there is a lot of working time for these guys. They're not going to have that time. So that much time to research. So they've really got to get that benefit nice and quickly from you. The final thing, uh, Zach, I'd say about sort of the copy on the website, and I'm not, look, I'm not picking on the copy. The copy is fine. I think I'm just trying to use it as an example of the overall positioning of the business. But when a customer is looking at a website or a potential client is looking at your website, they're really thinking, what's in it for me? You know, people are inherently selfish in the way they look at these things. You know, they're a customer. They're looking and saying, what can you do for me? And so just on the language, I think it's really important that you talk about the language and the, and the phrasing changes. So as an example, and again, you know, I'm really, you know, this isn't picking on the copy. I'm not a copywriter by any stretch, but what I do is try to understand the theory and the strategy behind that copy. And when I read the why choose stocker, I notice that four of the sentences start with the word we, which is really referring to stocker. We help farmers. We provide the most competitive. We have the network. We help farmers. Look, the help farmers part is great, but the fact that you're starting with we makes the copy very about stocker. And I'd like to make it more about the farmers if that's possible, because I think that's what they're going to do. And when you write that copy, really try to highlight the pain point. Try to highlight what it is that just drives them insane every day and how you're going to change that. Make sure they understand that that pain point and you highlight and remind them of that pain point so they think to themselves, yes, I want to understand more about that. The only other thing I'd say is just on the whole, on the get a quote button, there might be a, a softer call to action that you can, you know, tell me more or some other kind of call to action. Get a quote sort of sounds like I'm ready to do a deal. I think I'd like to get in a bit more and find a bit more out. Could be wrong, but that to me strikes me as a classic split test scenario. So I'd be getting some split test, A-B testing software, running a bunch of different colors, sizes, buttons, particularly focusing on the text around that, get a quote or other call to action. I think you'd be surprised if you could run 10, 15, 20 different iterations of that button, which is going to be one of the most important ones on your website. Just split test that and see what results going to come out the best for you. So the last thing I want to talk about on this week's podcast is a visit to my local coffee shop earlier on this week. So unrelated to the story, but I've been getting up early recently just to try to start the day, a little bit of exercise, a little bit of mind clearing, been part of a program called Peak Persona. Um, and although I've been getting up at pre 5am every day, I do try and and I go out and I have a walk and I also sometimes use that to listen, that time to listen to podcasts. So I'm out, I'm in my exercise gear, I've got my AirPods in, I've got my mobile phone, and that's all I've got with me. Now, one of the great things on 
my street where I live, there's a little cafe less than maybe 50 meters from the front door of my house. And I go there quite a bit and they serve great coffee. It's not cheap coffee. It's about $4.50 for a flat white, which is the pretty much the Australian standard these days. I think if you can keep it under $5, you're doing well. And I just looked and thought, I'm going to get two coffees, one for me, one for my wife, bring them home. That'll be a great start to her day. And plus I really wanted one. All I had on me though was my mobile phone. On my phone, I've got, it's a new sort of Pixel 2 Android phone and it's got GPay and I've got one card that works on it and it's my Amex card. As it happens, I bank with Suncorp and because Suncorp don't own their credit card infrastructure or, in, or write any of their own credit card debt, they don't actually control that. And anyway, long story short, it means Suncorp cards can't be added to GPay. So I walk into the cafe and I say, by the way, do you accept Amex? To which I met with, no, we don't, sorry. In that situation, I have no wallet. In that situation, all I have is my phone and my Amex. So I had to walk out of there without my two coffees. It's a $9 sale. And as I was walking that last 30, 40 meters home, it really irked me to think of the, I guess, the lack of business thought that's gone into this process. Now, there's two people who, or two, I guess, entities that are really losing in this deal. Firstly, there's the cafe. The cafe didn't make a sale. Now, I understand the logic when you look backwards and say, paying 1% more to process Amex credit cards, if I did that for all my business, is going to cost me a big chunk of my profit. You know, it's going to be fairly small at the end of the day. However, the issue I've got is that the actual cost of producing each net new coffee isn't that high. The ingredients, the milk, the coffee into that you know, flat white isn't the expensive part. I don't know exactly what that would be, but I'd hazard a guess at 50 cents to a dollar for the actual ingredients. So where does that leave us? Well, I'm looking at this coffee and thinking most of the cost, and rightly so, is in the store, is in the staff, is in the fact that they're always there. When it's not busy, they've still got to have staff there. They're still open, paying for electricity, paying for insurance. So that's what goes into basically coming up with the price, $4.50 price for a flat white. The problem is staff wages, electricity, rent, insurance, these are kind of like expiring inventory, much like the same way if a plane takes off with an empty seat, you can't charge, that's gone. In the same way, if somebody's standing behind a coffee counter and they're not selling coffee, that time is gone. You still need to pay for that time. So it's not about the 1% extra you might pay to Amex. It's about the 99% that just walked back out the door and you didn't make that sale. So I don't know what the margin is on that, but I'd suggest it's quite significant. Now, obviously that's not going to be for everybody and there's going to be a lot of times, and I do this, and I think a lot of people do, where I'll walk into a store and turn up and say, and you try to use my Amex card first. Why do I do that? Um, I pay with Amex, I get more points, I get more points, I get a free trip. So it's it's quite simple, and if I can push that cost onto a retailer, I kind of will, particularly if it's sort of a big Woolworths or a Coles or someone like that where I'm not too worried about them. Anyway, the other company I'm looking at that's losing this situation is Suncorp. The fact that Suncorp don't have the ability to add my cards to my GPay just sort of boggles my mind. I don't understand how a bank would want to do less transactions, how they would want me to not run up more debt on my credit card. And I understand, you know, there's lots of costs in this and it's way outside the scope of what I'm going to appreciate. But again, I'm now looking at a situation where I'm saying, well, what banks will take GPay? And 
look, maybe I'm such an early adopter of sort of technology and these kind of payment solutions, but I do look to a future where we don't carry around lots of plastic cards. They will all end up in our mobile phone. I won't need a wallet. That phone, that smart device will be the ultimate thing that I carry around. I'm not going to need anymore. It's got my boarding passes. It's got my email, my text. It's got everything I need in my calendar. It has one card. I just need to put more in. So I will look at moving to ING. And to that end, I sort of then thought, well, what about my business cards? Only to find that NAB are trying to push who I do my business banking with, trying to push their own app. And you just look at that and you think, why are you trying to push your own platform? Why try to push your own ecosystem? This is not the business you're in. You're not a platform play. You're the bank. You need to be using the infrastructures out there. And it's just, it's an interesting sort of way to look at the way people make rational decisions. I guess looking backwards and thinking paying 1% more is costing them money or the margin on the business might only be 1%. But if the overall revenue drops, then you're not in a great position. From the bank's point of view, if you're moving away from your core proposition, if you're not focused on what you really do and you're allowing other elements to slow down your core business because you're not relaxing and allowing and adopting, you're going to lose out in the long run. And so, look, it's a little bit of a rant and it's just me looking at these situations, but I do struggle to understand sometimes the logic that businesses apply. Yes, there's costs. Yes, there's sort of barriers and reasons why we won't want to take these approaches. But when I look at it, all I can see is businesses that aren't focusing on their core. They're focusing on the wrong equations and they're calculating things in the wrong way. So I look forward to a future where everyone accepts my Amex card. I should qualify that and say the one thing that I also see with the two card payments is that lots of places now do pass on the Amex fees. And I think that's fine. I think that's a nice way to sort of say, look, we will charge 1% more because it's Amex. There's laws in Australia and we've probably got the most robust laws around what you can pass on in terms of credit card transaction fees now anywhere in the world. So there are ways to tackle this, but I think more than anything, focus on the core business. Don't turn away customers. Don't let your inventory expire unless you absolutely have to. A dollar made on something that's about to expire is well worth pursuing. So that's the end of the episode. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. Um, I look forward to taking more of your questions and answering them next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to that latest episode, guys. I've just got two quick favors to ask of you here right at the end. Firstly, if you have any questions, please shoot them through. This podcast only exists because I answer questions that listeners send in. So if you head along to fractal.com.au slash questions, that'll redirect you to the latest episode and you can drop your questions down there. Those questions you submit become the basis for each episode. So if you've got a question around SEO, paid search, growth hack marketing, PR, brand positioning, market segmentation, anything you might like to know that's going to help your business, drop the question down there and I'll try to answer it on the next episode. If you don't have any questions, that's absolutely fine. The other thing you can do is head on over to fractal.com.au slash subscribe. Subscribing to this podcast not only delivers each episode straight through to your smartphone, but it really helps me reach a bigger audience all the time. That subscription really helps me out. So if you can do that, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for your time again and see you next week.